But I'm excited to, to continue in our series, Kingdom Manifesto. Uh, we started just a couple weeks ago, and we've just been exploring the Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. Okay, it's a historical account, uh, a man that was with Jesus, and he wrote down all the things that he experienced and saw when he was with Jesus. And, and this sermon was something that he recorded as Jesus having taught. Jesus taught this long-form sermon. It, it wasn't a short sermon. You know, these guys had a little bit more, I think, discipline and, and, and uh, what do you call that, uh, focus. What, it was the ability to just focus on something long-term. You know, they, they, man, they, they really weren't distracted uh, by TikTok like we are today. And so uh, they were able to listen to these long sermons, and Jesus gave them one. And as a matter of fact, the reason we're calling this series Manifesto, Kingdom Manifesto, is because a manifesto is a public declaration of policy or aims. And, and so Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to give you my manifesto for this kingdom that I'm now inaugurating on earth and in heaven, and I want you to know what my policy is. I want you to know what my aims are. This is a kingdom manifesto, and in it, he's really expressing the heart of God. He's expressing his own heart. He's expressing his heart for people, his heart for Christians, his heart for, for people who call themselves followers of Jesus and what it is that he's inviting them into. And this kingdom that he's inaugurating is ultimately different than any other kingdom on earth. There's nothing like it. There never will be. And, and his kingdom is here now, and his kingdom will be here later after all kingdoms on earth fall. And I gave a really good overview, I'd like to think, in week one of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to encourage you, if you missed it or just wanted to refresh yourself on it, go to northwood.church slash podcast and select Ocean Springs. And you can go back and review what we talked about. Uh, but one of the things that you'll hear when you do is that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus is speaking of himself and he says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. He said, I didn't come to cancel these things, but I came to fulfill them. And we talked about how the law, as the Jews knew it, was something that they followed to the letter, every jot and tittle, if you will. And, and it was something that they, they, they believed that their righteousness was found in their ability to be obedient and compliant with the law. And he said, look, I didn't come to cancel that. I came to fulfill it. And now what that means is you're no longer going to live by the letter of the law. You're going to live by the spirit of the law. This is becoming a heart issue. He's getting to the matter of the heart. And it's actually a higher standard that Jesus is calling us to. And we're going to feel a little bit of that, that, that call as we walk through these scriptures today. The, the cool thing about this, though, is because when you start thinking about, man, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I can't follow the law as it is. Call me to a higher standard. How am I supposed to do that? Well, the, the beautiful thing about God, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he said, I'm not going to call you to do something that I'm not also going to equip you to do. And, and he sends his Holy Spirit after he leaves, which empowers us to walk faithfully according to the call. And by his grace that offers not only forgiveness when we miss the mark, because we will miss the mark, but also by his grace that empowers us to a life of faithfulness, we can be successful as disciples of Jesus. Again, it's a matter of the heart. And today's message is called the heart of faithfulness. We are talking about faithfulness today. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, if you've got your Bibles with you, that's where we're at. You can crack those, those Bibles open. Uh, if you're on your phone, you can open your YouVersion Bible app. We like to use that as well. Uh, the bottom right corner of that app, you'll see a little button that says more. Click the button, follow that to events, select Ocean Sp Northwood Church, Ocean Springs, and you can follow along in our sermon notes there and take some notes and things like that. But while you're getting to that place in the Bible, I'm just going to go ahead and, and start uh, leaning into this. Again, Jesus was contrasting what he's now calling believers to with the law that they had already known. And so in relationship to the law, he says, you've heard it said. You've heard this part of the law before, in other words. You shall not commit adultery. How, how many of you heard that before? You've heard the Ten Commandments? If you've ever heard the Ten Commandments, this is the seventh of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. And he says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, this is a matter of the heart. And he's talking about lust and adultery. And while he does specifically address the men in the room, if you will, he's talking to you fellas, okay? So perk up those ears, we need to listen. But this also applies to women as well. This is not a problem that just men have. This is a problem that men and women have. We are all subject to lust and an adulterous mind and heart. And so this is going to step on some toes today. You guys okay with that? Matter of fact, it might step on some toes so hard, I think we should pray. (laughs) Father, we just come before you right now. We love you and we love your word. Like Pastor Casey said earlier, we want to live by your word. And if we must... We will die by this word so that we might live in Christ. Lord, I'm just praying that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Where there's hardness, you would soften. Where there's sin, you'd convict and we'd be open and receptive. Where there's lies, you'd bring truth. God, and that you would transform us from the inside out, from our heart and beyond. God, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. We thank you for what you're going to do in this place today. God, help us, heal us, make us whole, offer your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so, we're talking lust. Now, lust is defined this way. It's defined as extreme desire or like this longing for something or this craving for something. Now, this lust is ultimately, especially in this scripture, thought of around the subject of sex and sexuality. But lust goes beyond that. It goes into the material realm as well. You can lust for things. You can lust for circumstances. In 1 John chapter 2, it says that lust, or in other words, this worldly desire, isn't of God, but it is of the world. So it's not of God. And as a matter of fact, we know this to be true because if we go all the way back to the creation narrative, we see in the Garden of Eden where God placed Adam and Eve in that garden and said, you can eat from the tree of life and everything else in the garden except for that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat from it, you shall surely, what? Die. You guys have heard that one before, huh? Okay. And, and so... Adam and Eve, as you know, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens, they become awakened to the knowledge of not just evil, but also good things. Remember, lust is not just evil. You can can lust after things that are seemingly good as well. And that's, that's when their hearts were opened to lust. Before they only desired the Lord and that which the Lord gave those good things, those blessings that come from above. Here and now, they're, they're desiring those things that the serpent actually deceived them to believe were good for them. And in their effort to become like God and wise and, and such, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now, lust enters the world. And God instructs that we abstain from it, while Satan instructs and encourages and manipulates that we indulge in it. As a matter of fact... Um, I hope none of you have spent much time studying Satanism, but uh, if you look at the Satanic Bible, and if you have, it's okay. This is a safe place to work through those, you know, belief systems. We're going to sort through that stuff. But if you looked at the Satanic Bible, one of the premises of the Satanic Bible is that what you want to no longer be attracted to, in other words, that you want to lust for, fill yourself with it so much so that you become sick of it and now you'll have conquered it. And how many of us know that anything that you give yourself an appetite for, you keep being hungry for? It's a lie. It's a lie. If If we don't want to be hungry for lust, then we need to starve ourselves of that And Jesus is here speaking again of sexual lust. And so we're going to touch on that for just a moment. Did you know that if you entertain lustful thoughts, it's dishonoring the person that you're lusting after? If it's a believer, we're called to consider one another brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. So there's kind of this weird thing going on, first off, if it's in the church. Second of all, even if it's outside of the church, at least we're objectifying the object of our lust, which really steals away value from that person, doesn't it? But it doesn't only dishonor that person, it dishonors God. And some of you might be sitting in here thinking, man, those poor sorry saps that struggle with that lust. We all actually struggle 
with this issue in some form or fashion. We're all wired to be attracted to beautiful things. We're all wired to be attracted to things that entice our desires. We just let the enemy's deception cause our focus to be given to a worldly or sinful pursuit of these things. And so we're all dealing with this in different ways and maybe to different degrees. And this is an issue that we find inside of our hearts first. It starts there. It starts in our mind. And sometimes we try to play this down. Oh, everybody does it. Ain't that big a deal. I mean, I'm just looking at the menu anyway, as long as I don't order from it, right? We play it down. And sometimes we play the victim. And we look to blame others for our lust. Well, she wasn't dressed appropriately, or he shouldn't be showing off that much of that that bicep. And, and we, we blame shift and we look around our society. And honestly, in some senses, I get it. Because look, we live in a very consumeristic society where, where we are marketed at the highest level. Everybody's trying to grab our attention. And, and what sells best? Sex. How taboo is this? Y'all are afraid to say it. You're like, sex. <laughs> so taboo. We're grown, right? I think we got all the kids out now. And, and the reality of it is we live in an over-sexualized culture where everything is about sex. And just a few clicks, you can see everything that your lustful heart desires to see. And you can spend as much time as you want to spend there. And you can let go for a minute and go right back to it. You have all the liberty in the world. You know, the beauty of Bathsheba, if you've ever heard of Bathsheba, she was a woman in the Old Testament. The beauty of Bathsheba, as she's bathing on her rooftop, caught the attention of the king of Israel, King David. You know, Jesus comes from the lineage of King David. This is a pretty important guy. King David, I'm imagining in his palace, I guess, he's not off to war. He's home, lazy, just filling his belly, I guess. And now he's filling his eyes. And he's gazing upon, glancing at this woman. And, and that, that attention that she's now garnished from him, whether she meant to uh, draw that attention or not, we don't know. But we do know that she's captured his attention. And that attention that she's captured now becomes a thought. And he's thinking about it. And that thought becomes a word. My, my, my. And that word, you almost begin to speak in a way that could cause that thought to become a thought pattern. I'd like that for myself. Now I'm thinking in a pattern about this lustful thing. And that pattern, most of the time, is going to lead to some sort of action. This is the progression of lust. This is how it controls us. And it leads to, whether it's physical adultery, which is what happened in David and Bathsheba's circumstance, or it leads to at least adultery in the heart because Jesus said himself, if you look upon a woman with lustful, lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. What has your attention? What are you glancing at? What is it that you're thinking about? Do you know that the use of pornography because of the ease of access, I think, is a big part of it. Because of the degree to which it's produced is another part of it. But also, it seems as though, just due to the, the brokenness of our society in this world we live in, the use of pornography is rampant. The percentage rates are so high. In the church and outside of the church, same percentages. Men and women, both. Pornography is a big deal. And this isn't just limited to like hardcore stuff. Romance novels. Yeah, it's soft. Netflix series. Man, it's got a great plot line. You really, you really are missing out if you don't watch that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those novels, that, that series got a great plot line. I agree. Really well written. And it's laced with lasciviousness and lewdness. It's laced with it. 
And I've got caught up in the trap myself trying to think I could fast forward through. And it just doesn't work that way. And then there's ads on billboards and ads on commercials. And, and it's all over the place. It's hard to get away from it. And, and the question has to be, if Jesus thought it important enough to talk about it as adultery, is it important enough that we should be tired of it operating in our lives and controlling us? I don't think this is something that we should tolerate in our lives. I'm committed to not tolerate it in my own life. I'm, I'm resisting anything that wants to capture the attention and affections of my heart apart from my spouse, my family, and my God. I'm, I'm going to give my heart and my eyes to the things that matter, the things that won't pervert me, the things that won't make me an adulterer. And it's such a serious matter that Jesus says this in verse 27, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. You're all like, man, that Jesus, he is, that's like barbarian stuff. I mean, oh my goodness. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. There's a consequence. He's saying if we allow the sinfulness of our lives, of the, the, the lustfulness of our hearts to lead us, there's a consequence. And he uses hyperbole here. Okay, hyperbole meaning an exaggerated statement to help make a point about how serious this thing is. He's not actually saying cut out your eye and cut off your arm. I just want to encourage you guys, don't do that. It's literally not what he means here. <laughs> He's trying to express how critical it is that we understand the importance of this, and it's a matter of the heart. And lust left unchecked does lead to disaster. It leads to a broken and wasted life. It leads to spiritual death. Romans 8.13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll, you'll die. And I know that sounds so drastic. It sounds so fatalist. But it is. Jesus said it. And he means it so much so that he says, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. Now, what does he really mean by that, though? Let's, let's just think about how to practically apply that in our context. Well, think about the places that capture your eye's attention first. Where is it that you're most drawn to that stirs lust in your heart? How about your phone? I could pull this thing out, and within a minute, I'll find something. And he says, cut off your eye. Well, how do I cut off my eye, or, uh, dig out my eye? Man, I delete the app. I'm going to delete the app. I'm going to get it out. I'm going to dig it out. I'm going to uproot it and anything that's like it, and I'm going to get it out of my life. With that kind of seriousness, with that kind of severity, what does it mean to cut off your arm? Well, what, I'm, I'm, holding, I'm holding this, or cut off your hand. I'm holding this, right? This allows me to actually control this thing, right? And then, and then what if somebody wanted to come help me? Hey, Curtis, come take this phone from me real quick. Seriously, come take this phone from me real quick. Yeah, thanks. Oh, you can't, no. I'm, I'm not. What does it look like to cut off your hand? Try to try take the phone from me again. Oh, 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 oh. Ah, okay. 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 I cut off my hand. Yeah, I'll take it back. Thanks. What if it means letting your wife have access to every part of your phone? Oop. What if it means letting a good friend have accountability in your life? What if that's how you cut off your hand? We should cut off our hand and cut out our eye. We should release control of these things. Maybe it's a relationship that you've been holding on to and there's a lust attached to that relationship, maybe that needs to be cut off. You know, maybe it's status because we lust for more than just sex, right? Maybe it's our lust for status. Maybe it's our lust for style. I do like to put it together a certain kind of way and it could become an idol. What if it's a, what if it's a lust for story? That, that my story, my life would happen in 
just a certain kind of way. I have this ideal about how life can go. I can have these worldly desires, this lust in my heart about literally how my life plays out. Did you know as a pastor, I can lust over this church and the growth that I desire to see in this church? I can lust after church growth and literally make Christ's bride an adulterer. We can do that. It's idolatry. See, lust leads us to believe that we'll find satisfaction in something other than Christ and his righteous way of living. Do you think you find satisfaction anywhere apart from Christ? Whatever that thing is that gives you more satisfaction than Christ does. I'm not saying you can't enjoy life. That's not my point. Every good thing comes from God, right? But I am saying if you find more satisfaction than you do in it, than you do in devotion to God, it may be an idol. It may be something you're lusting after, and it may need attention. And ultimately, it's rooted in unbelief. We're not trusting Jesus. But if we do trust Jesus, and if we discipline our lives for godliness, and if we live by the Spirit, he will empower us to a life of godliness where we can be free from the bondage. Not that we won't have temptation, not that the thoughts won't try to come up, but we'll be equipped to resist the work of the enemy in our lives. See, Romans 8.13 did say, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, Deeds of the body, what is that? You'll live if you put those things to death. Now, that's lust. Jesus moves on to some harder teaching. It gets even more complicated. And here we're going to explore one of the biggest consequences of lust, especially in the context of marriage, and it's called divorce. And I want to be really gentle in this area because I know that there's a lot of you who have walked through divorce, and it's been huge dis- disappointment in your life. It's led to a lot of pain. It's, it's been a trauma even to your soul. And maybe you've walked through a lot of confusion about how to navigate that. And so I just want you to know I've been laboring over this part of the message for a while. And um, I'm, I want to walk through this with humility And I feel the weight that you guys feel for those of you that have experienced this. And and I've experienced it in my own way as a a witness to it, not in my own life. But I I know the shame that comes with it. I know the, the hurt that's attached to divorce. And so I take this very seriously. But there's a lot of controversy about Jesus's teaching on divorce. A lot of the controversy has to do with the way that we interpret the scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 through 4, we see that there's a woman who was found indecent. And if this woman was found indecent, then she would be able to be written a certificate of divorce. And there's a couple different views, a couple different schools of thought on how to interpret this. And this is just one example of this, but we're going to use this one. And the conservative view is that that indecency that that husband found in his wife was indicating sexual immorality. She would have committed adultery. She was indecent in the marriage, right? And, and that would have been the reason that you could write for a certificate of divorce, But then there's this more liberal view. And when I say conservative and liberal, I'm not talking political here. I'm just talking about how tightly we hold to an idea or how loosely we hold to an idea. That's that's really what those those phrases mean here. And, and, And the liberal interpretation of this word indecent actually is so loose that people were divorcing for some of the most pitiful reasons. A woman could mess up a meal and a husband would be like writing her a certificate of divorce. A woman, if if she spoke too loudly in the home to where the neighbors could hear her, he could write her a certificate of divorce. If she no longer pleased him. I mean, come on, this is just, this is so loose. If she no longer pleased him, he could write her a certificate of divorce. And, And women in this time were uneducated and generally unemployable. And so what would have happened when a woman was written a certificate of divorce is her support system, her husband, Her income stream, her husband, right, now has dried up. Now she's on her own. Now she's put in this place of destitution where she would have to make some really difficult decisions about where to go next and what to do with her life. And and this was actually a very generous thing for for a husband to offer her certificate of divorce because in other cultures all throughout the world, they weren't even allowed that. 
They were just under the deepest sort of oppression. And here Jesus is about to correct this cultural mindset around putting women in a position like that. We're not just going to be loose and, and put women away like, like they're road hard and hung up to dry. That's the phrase, right? We're not going to do that. We're going to fix this cultural mindset. But more importantly, we're going to raise the bar on value of marriage. And in verse 31, he goes back to the law. He said, you've heard it was said. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what you've heard said. But I say, raising the standard, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this set of scriptures here is deep, complex, and nuanced. And there's actually a part of it we really can't dig too deeply into. We'd have to save that for a whole nother, like sermon, right? But we are going to focus on, on, on one major part of it. And, and, and we see that Jesus shows that there is a justifiable reason for divorce, and he calls it sexual immorality, right? It's adultery. And Jesus wants to deal with this problem, not of justifiable divorce, as much as he wants to deal with the problem of unjustifiable divorce. And he emphasizes that people are taking divorce too lightly. You heard it say that you could just flippantly write a certificate of divorce. Nah, it's very narrow. You don't have as, many, as much liberty as you thought you had. Divorce matters too much for you to just be writing people off like that, okay? And it's still the same today. We see an example in Mark chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus is speaking to some people that would have come after this Sermon on the Mount. And, and they're again asking him, like, could you just clarify on that? Because we kind of like the liberty that we had around divorces. And, you know, we just think that you could uh, just lighten up a little bit there, boss. And, uh, and they said, they, they asked him, they said, what about divorce? And he says this. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. See, this is what happens in marriage. This is a Genesis creation account where God lays out the picture for what marriage is supposed to be. And he says, when two are joined, they become one flesh. And he said, let what God's joined together, let not man separate. Stop giving people permission to bust up their marriages so easily. It's not that simple. That's what Jesus was telling the Pharisees. Because divorce, divorce does separate what God has joined. And there's a tearing away that happens there. And there's a pain. And it leads to some of those things that I talked about earlier. Some of those traumas. Some of the following bitterness and unforgiveness that we walk through. That now we've got to process. It impacts our children. It can impact our children's children. If God doesn't get up in there and intervene, it's so detrimental and, and it can also be a bad testimony. You see, God is the one who joined them together. Let what God joined together, let no man tear apart. And if God joined them together, why couldn't he keep them together? That's a bad testimony. And ultimately, divorce happens as a result of sin. Now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to alleviate a little of the pressure that some of you might be feeling here in just a minute. So hang with me. Ultimately, divorce happens as a result of sin. Jesus said that Moses wouldn't have written you all of these certificates of divorce had it not been for the hardness of your hearts. The hardness of your hearts. Hearts of stone. See, Jesus' standard is higher than the culture that we live in, that even they lived in. And he's calling Christians to hold to this higher standard of divorce and even remarriage. Now, I told you I was going to hit the pressure release valve in just a second. I'm going to hit that right now. Everybody's like, good. If you're divorced and you're feeling condemnation, whether you're married again or still unmarried, I want to undo a little bit of that for just a second. We're going to explore first some reasons for potential divorce. Reasons for potential divorce. Now, we say potential because even these reasons don't have to be a nail in the coffin. They don't have to be a death sentence for your marriage. You might be in this room right now like, yeah, that kind of fits me. That's our category. That's where we're at right now. This doesn't have to end your marriage. 
This gives you grounds for divorce, but it doesn't require divorce. And I have seen so many people that have been in these situations and even worse. And God has done a miraculous work of restoration in their lives. He's brought healing. He's brought reconciliation. He can do it. I've seen it done before. And and, and we do want to believe that way. But we need to explore what those potential reasons for divorce are. Number one, it's very clear in the Bible. Jesus just said it in the scripture. It's infidelity. It's adultery. It's an affair. He says it in Matthew 5.31. He says it in Matthew 19.9. He said it. We see it in a couple places in the scripture. It's clear. And so if in a marriage there's an affair, that is justifiable grounds for divorce. doesn't guarantee or require divorce, but it makes it permissible. Then there's one that's a little less clear, but still clear, but there's, there's, there's scriptural support for this. Some people have like nuanced understanding of what this looks like, but it's scriptural. Abandonment. If an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, we're believers in here, let's assume. If, if we have an unbelieving spouse and they leave us, well, that's justifiable reasons for divorce. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. And then this third one, most theologians, even those who are more conservative, who are generally looking for any way to discount, you know, most reasons for divorce, even the most conservative, even some of the more conservative theologians would agree that abuse is a justifiable reason for divorce. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Physical and emotional abuse, it's an affront on the image of God. Like literally, we're image bearers and somebody puts their hand on that image and tries to destroy that image, God's going to have a really hard time withholding his wrath from that person. And, and, and ultimately, it's also a picture of God's justice. God is not about leaving the defenseless and, and, and the innocent, if you will, left to their own to be subject to the deepest kinds of abuse. Now, physical abuse is more obvious. Physical abuse is kind of easy to discern, usually. Usually. Not always, but usually. And, and if somebody finds themselves in that kind of situation, if you're listening on the podcast right now, and, and you're like, man, that, oh, that's me. I'm just thankful that it's illegal in our context. I'm thankful that we're able to seek legal counsel. We're able to seek support in this respect. And we're able to have the abuser held accountable. I'm thankful that our society provides protection to victims of domestic violence. That's physical abuse. Seems to be justifiable to me. Then there's emotional abuse. Emotional abuse is a lot less obvious. One of the challenges with emotional abuse is that every person has a different threshold about what they can and can't handle. Somebody might be a little bit more fragile in their psyche and their emotions, and you got a strong personality. I mean, and they could be experiencing some, you know, real, real, you know, hard things. But, you know, if, if you were to look at it, it might not be emotional abuse, but subjectively it feels that way to them. And from the outside looking in, everybody wants to, you know, kind of assess and critique and offer their opinions, but it's really hard to discern these things. And sometimes what's called abuse really isn't abuse. I'm going to tell you right now, we have to be careful about that language abuse because we actually live in a culture where everyone is crying out abuse over everything and anything. And it's, it's not realistically abuse, that's actually, the, your, the defamation that you're actually crying out is more abusive than maybe my harshness to you in a conversation, okay? Abuse is so subjective and, and where everybody's looking to, for abuse and looking to label things abuse, we have to be really careful about the counsel that we take and even about the way that we interpret our experience because if we label something abuse that's not abuse, we could find ourselves making decisions that could lead to consequences that might not be justifiable. However... Sometimes what's called abuse really is. Sometimes there's people who are manipulative and will mind twist people and control people and crush people emotionally and psychologically 
leading somebody to become a shell of the person that they once were. And it's abusive. And every situation is unique. And it's very complex. And there's no one-size-fits-all answer. And we need to, again, walk by the spirit of the law here. We need to navigate this discerning what God is trying to do in our lives. But I will say this. If you're contemplating divorce or if you have a friend that's contemplating divorce and, and we're, we're trying to support that person, we want to maybe recommend that they seek some professional counsel, whether that's a counselor for their own psyche, whether it's legal counsel in regards to what their options are. But can I just tell you, oftentimes counsel, unless it is biblical and wise, discerning, godly counsel, more often than not, somebody is going to very quickly categorize abuse as abuse or things that aren't abuse as abuse is better said. And, and so more importantly, we want to we make sure that you've got somebody in your corner that's discerning with you where you're at. Because I'm going to be very transparent with you for just a moment. In me and Amy's first two years of marriage, if you were looking from the outside in, and if I would have sought counsel about the way that Amy was treating me, and if Amy would have sought counsel about the way that I was treating her, people would have said, that's abuse, run now before it's too late. But what it really was, was immaturity. What it really was, was a lack of sanctification. It was a lack of Christ's character, and God was still working on us. And, and, and he was actually using our marriage to help form our character. And if we would have left, if we would have listened to counsel that might have tried to offer us counsel that said, hey, that's abuse, get out of there, we would have missed the richness of the rest of our marriage and the rest of our lives that we're going to get to enjoy. God's not done with you yet. I'm not saying there's not reasons that are justifiable for divorce. There's, I just listed a number of them. And so we shouldn't be condemned if we found ourselves in a position where we fall in that place. But what I am saying is we need to be very discerning when trying to make decisions about this because marriage is a big deal. Marriage is a big deal. And divorce for any unjustifiable reason is sinful. And it will ultimately most of the time, lead to more sin as somebody looks to make decisions about what's next in their life. You can get caught up in a trap of sinful decision-making. I'll spare the details. Again, alleviating some pressure. If you've had an unjustifiable divorce, one that doesn't fit in that category, y'all just quit, whatever, I don't know. That's your business. I want to encourage you now, don't be condemned. You made a mistake, perhaps. You missed the mark, perhaps. Let's call it what it is. It's sin. Sure, you sinned. Fine. But in Christ, we find forgiveness for sin. His grace is sufficient, and in our weakness, his strength is made perfect, and his love covers a multitude of our sins. Don't be condemned. If you're in Christ, what you do is you acknowledge that you missed the mark, you acknowledge that you sinned, and you live right from now on. Repent and live right. Don't be condemned. That's a tool of the enemy. Now, whether the divorce was justifiable or not, I do want to Acknowledge that I know they're painful. And, and you might need to share this with a friend who's walking through it right now. There's healing. There's healing after divorce. There's healing after that flesh is torn apart. There's healing after the disappointment. There's healing after the fear that follows. There's healing after all of those things. And that's the business that God is in. He's in the business of healing and that's what we should be looking forward to if we found ourselves in that position. Now, I want to zoom out and ask, because if marriage is so important, we need to ask them, right, what is marriage supposed to be? Well, I'm going to give you a quick summary statement. God created marriage to be a sacred and permanent, sacred and permanent union and partnership between a man and a woman until death. That's our definition for what marriage is supposed to be. And I know that seems so narrow. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, in our culture, that's increasingly believing that monogamy and commitment is actually kind of oppressive and so traditional and so patriarchal 
in our society that thinks that way, those kinds of thoughts, sacred and permanent, partnership between man and woman for life? Give me a break. They think it's crazy, but it's not. It's biblical. It's God's design. And that's why divorce is such a big deal, because marriage matters. Marriage matters to God. Why does marriage matter? Well, let's explore that. It's because marriage is a tool for sanctification. Did you know that God wants to mature us through our marriages? Did you know that God, if you'll let him, he will ground you down to a nub (laughs) until there's nothing left of the old version of you for his glory? (laughs) Amen. And some of us are thinking, yeah, I'm just not really happy in my marriage. I mean, it could be so much better. Look at their marriage. Look at their marriage. We're just so different, you know? We have, as a matter of fact, what I would consider to be irreconcilable differences. We can't fix this. Look, nobody's at fault. She's not wrong. I'm not wrong. We're just going to go our separate ways. A lot of people think that way. Like, like, boo people think that way. Lots and lots of people. Did you know that if you're married to someone that's just like you, not only is it going to be very boring, but one of you is unnecessary in the marriage? <laughs> Literally, like, the reason we're put together is to complement one another, to make up for that which one another lacks. I mean, like, embrace your partner's diversity. Embrace their assets and their liabilities because you forget really quickly that your asset, I know you like to think of your assets, right? I got some assets. You know, I bring some things to the table, you know. And uh, I know you like to think of your assets in a really positive light, but did you know that my greatest asset is also my greatest liability? This mouthpiece I got? (laughs) And we got to ask the question anyway, are we really called to be happy or are we called to be holy? That's really what marriage is all about. Don't get me wrong, we get the benefit of growing in happiness and enjoying the fruit of the love and union that we have with our spouse, but God is ultimately wanting to produce holiness in us. And I know that some of our marriages feel like a raging fire. Just wants to burn your face off sometimes. (laughs) Not all the time, just sometimes. John's like, "Uh oh, not mine. (laughs) Not me. But that fire is intended to refine. That's what God does. He says, you're precious, but you have impurities. And like any good precious metal, we refine it by fire, cause that dross, that, those impurities to come to the top, and we sift them off, and you become more like God desires for you to be. Now, more often than not, marriages end because people quit too soon. We resist that refining work of God in our lives. We don't want to be burnt. We don't want to be ground down to a nub. It's painful, especially if you're a heathen like I am. It's hard, and we quit. I want to just tell you right now, don't quit. If you're in your marriage right now, and it's hard, and it burns, and don't quit. Don't quit, y'all. Fight for your marriage. Do the hard thing because it's worth it. Every every fight is worth it. Every misalignment, every disagreement is worth it. I imagine me and Amy sitting on our front porch. Maybe it's Thanksgiving Eve and the kids are pulling up in our driveway with their kids. Our grandkids just arrived. And I'll never see that if we don't fight our way through this thing. But it's not just worth it for our future. It's worth it because the marriage is a picture of the gospel. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he helps to portray the church as, or excuse me, the, the husband and the wife as the groom and the bride. And it's a parallel to the relationship between Christ, the groom, and church, the church, the bride. It's this beautiful picture of covering and, and order and authority and security and safety. It's this beautiful picture of 
submitting one unto another and loving and respecting. It's this beautiful picture of Christ and us. And in Ephesians 5, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He refers again to the Genesis creation order. He said, this is the order, one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying, this is beautiful because Christ and the church are one the same way that husband and wife are one. You know, a lot of times we think about other relationships, our children, and we, oh, I'm one with, no, I'm one with my wife. My kids came second. Yeah, they're of my blood, but my wife is of my flesh. You understand? There's a spiritual, supernatural reality happening. Don't let your kids get between you and your wife, by the way. Side note. And Jesus laid down his life for the church, as a husband should his wife, so that we could experience oneness between us and him. And he forgave us, and he healed us, and he's reconciled us with the Father. But often due to deception and due to selfishness, we miss what God is trying to do in our lives. I'm so thankful for God's faithfulness, his mercy, and his grace, and his forgiveness, not just because he offers it to us, but because it's a model for us. We can look at that and say, that's what I want for my marriage. We should pursue in our marriages forgiveness. We should pursue healing. And where there's brokenness, we should pursue reconciliation. You know, Jesus... He's calling us to be faithful to one another. But he's not only calling us to be faithful to one another, but to be faithful to him. You know, some of you might feel that your spouse is too far gone. You're like, I got some justifiable reasons why, why I could leave this bum. You're thinking about your spouse and all of their liabilities, Maybe you've already sought counsel about it or you're thinking about seeking counsel or whatever. And I just want to encourage you to just, just pump the brakes for just a second. Just a second. Pump the brakes and remember first that we all need the grace and forgiveness of God. According to Jesus, those who have lust in their heart are adulterous. Do you realize that in the eyes of God, in the eyes of our Father, he has justifiable reason to divorce us. And he chooses forgiveness. And he chooses mercy. Do you recall earlier when I said, if you sinned, don't be condemned. Repent and live right from now on, Right? This is the message for all of us. It's not just for those who've divorced. It's not just for those who've failed in this area or failed in that area. We all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Don't be condemned. Repent and live right from now on. By the way, Jesus modeled this for us. Listen to this. The Pharisees caught the woman, this woman in adultery in the act, and they brought her out in the street and they were getting ready to stone her. And Jesus gets in between them and he says, hold up, hold up, hold up. Let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And he leans down and he begins to write in the sand. And, and some people think different things about what he may have been writing. The Bible doesn't say, but maybe it was the sins of each of those people holding those stones. Maybe it was the names of their mistresses. Maybe he was reminding them what, what their sin is. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he looks up at this one. He says, how about you? You got me, boss. Drops the stone and walks away. And one by one, they all walk away. And he's standing there with the adulterous woman. He says, where are your accusers now? They're gone. Where are your condemners? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Christ is calling us to walk in the forgiveness and the grace that his blood provided on the cross of Calvary. He's calling us to submit and surrender our lives to his work, the work of his spirit, the truth of his word. 
and we're going to miss the mark at times. But he says, look at me. There's no one con to condemn you when you're looking to me. When your life is in me, there's no one conde to condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And this is the Christian walk. And this is what we need to continue to do, is to repent and to go and sin no more. And so here in just a moment, we're going to sing a song again called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Because it's not by our power, it's not by our religious efforts, it's not by our doing the right thing, it's by Christ in me, the hope of the world. Christ empowering us to a life of godliness. It's through him that we have the ability to stand righteous before God, to be justified in God's eyes, and to live a life worthy of the call. And so what I want to do right now is I just want to pray for those of us that might not have yet put our trust in Christ. This is a great time for you to do that. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you for your word, even, even your hard word. Your hard word that is hard to hear sometimes. It confronts us. I thank you that the way that you confront us is gentle and loving. I thank you that your confrontation is not condemning, but it is convicting. And Lord, where there's conviction in this room today, God, would you cause us to respond to that conviction with humility, with surrender. Touch our hearts in this place today. If there's anyone in this place right now who's never put their trust in Jesus, you've realized, man, you've been lusting after the world. You've been lusting after other things. You've made idols out of your work, out of your family, out of yourself. You've made an idol out of your religion. You've made an idol out of whatever. Whatever it is, you haven't had God on the throne of your heart. Jesus is not on the throne of your heart. Right now is the opportunity for you to surrender your life to Jesus and, and, and make space for him on that throne. And it's very simple. You could say a prayer like this, Jesus, I need you. I confess with my mouth that you are worthy to be called Lord. And I believe in my heart that the power of the Holy Spirit raised you from the grave. And I, I welcome you and I welcome your presence. I welcome that same spirit to raise me from the grave too. Forgive me for my sin. I repent. And now I want to go and sin no more. Help me in Jesus' name.